Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. For 25 years, Seth Lightman has seen it all. From the newest electric car revolution, solar power, bike lanes made in NYC. And now we are here. More electric cars, need for more renewables and eco-friendly products in our world. Well, now it's time for an all-out podcast for this time. You're listening to The Green Living Guy Show. He's funny, real, exactly on point. And some think his style is so raw, it's crazy. Let's do this, folks. It's time for The Green Living Guy Show with Seth Lightman. What's up, everybody? It's The Green Living Guy Show. It's Seth Lightman. So glad you're here. And we are recording this on Earth Day. So happy Earth Day, everybody, for 2021. It's a beautiful day. Seems like there's a lot of good Earth Day accomplishments happening across the board all over the place. And we needed to have a leader to come on to our show today to talk turkey about what's important, which is an organization that I know well, too, because I live in the town of Osning. I live in village of Briarcliff Manor, but in the village of Osning is the Hudson Riverkeeper. So they are protecting the Hudson River and trying and doing, and they've been at the forefront. Look, I've been old enough to know when GE was dumping stuff and we were doing, trying to do remediation. So I get it. And we have none other than the head of the Tennessee Riverkeeper, David Whiteside, ladies and gentlemen, to join us today to talk about the essentials of our waterways on an amazing day like Earth Day. So, David, thank you for being on the Green Living Guy show today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Happy Earth Day, y'all. Happy Earth Day, y'all is right. So let's talk a little bit about your journey. Enough, everybody knows, or most of these people know about mine here. <laughs> Tell me about your journey in relation to understanding the essence of the rivers and the waterways and getting involved in being a leader of the uh, Tennessee Riverkeeper. Sure. Thank you, Seth. Well, quickly, I come from a long line of civil rights activists. My maternal ancestors uh, voted to secede from the Confederacy They fought the Ku Klux Klan. They fought George Wallace and Bull Connor to help desegregate the South, played a pivotal role in desegregating the South. I can trace this civil rights legacy going back to the 1860s, 1850s, and in the South on my maternal ancestor side. And that fight, that drive for civil rights is in my DNA. It's in my blood. I felt it from my earliest memories. And my godfather is Robert F. Kennedy Jr. When I learned about pollution in the first grade, I told my parents that I wanted to fight pollution. And they said, well, you should talk to your godfather, Bobby Kennedy, about that. I did. And I'd really never looked back at changing careers or my career path, alternating my career path. I stayed on that path of wanting to fight pollution. Eventually, I 
very soon I realized that I wanted to sue polluters specifically, which is what Bobby was doing. Right. And uh, he mentored me in that. And I went and took these summer internships in high school and college and started getting really involved with Hudson Riverkeeper and Westchester County and And that's our flagship program. And that river changed my life. And I wanted to bring it down to the south. And it's been way more successful than I possibly could have imagined. Look at you. And you brought it from where I, I know. Oh, my gosh. Small. When they say it's a small world, it really is in many different ways. In this earth, we have to protect it. And you're bringing from what you learned down south. Tell me some of the accomplishments that you have done with Tennessee Riverkeeper to date and what we could do to help you, most importantly, in your fight down there. Before I get into that, I sure. always mention that my, answer, my uncle found out a few years ago that my family is in lineage with the Bielski family, who is, were the Jews that fought against Nazis during the Holocaust. So the Inglorious Bastards movie or the uh, Defiance with Daniel Craig movie is what that's replicating. So it's my family. So I stand for fighting the fight and am with you more than, you know, on that idea of fighting for what's right and standing up and being there for people that are fighting the fight. So let's hear what you've done down in Tennessee. As I said, I, the first Riverkeeper was started on the Hudson River by a group of commercial fishermen in 1966. We now have 350 waterkeepers aligned under the Waterkeeper Alliance, which was founded by our original waterkeeper programs and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. in 1999. I went to the University of Vermont knowing that that was one of the top undergraduate universities in the country for environmental science and environmental studies. My major there was starting Riverkeepers. So I went there knowing my career path and rather I was more interested in starting my career than studying the environment. I was ready to sue polluters, not read books about it. Right. And, and so the first Riverkeeper I started was called Black Warrior Riverkeeper. And it was based in Birmingham, Alabama and Tuscaloosa. And that was a big part of my senior thesis. My senior thesis was going to be just starting that one waterkeeper organization. But by the time I graduated, the senior thesis uh, involved starting four waterkeeper organizations uh, throughout Alabama. And I was halfway towards my dream of, of establishing waterkeepers on all the major river systems in the Deep South, particularly Alabama and Tennessee. How bad was the pollution down there? If you can give it context to people, like, was it mostly coal? Was it a combination of chemicals that were being dumped? What were the things that you were needing to fight to keep the water quality perfect that was definitely not happening down there? Well, you know, the environmental enforcement is very weak in the Deep South, and there's a lot of political corruption and lack of environmental education and awareness and poverty. But they also just, the, the regulatory agencies are generally will side with business rather than public health. And so we, what I found was across the board, the pollution was worse down south than it was in really any other part of the country, and especially Vermont, where I'd been in college. I went from one of the most polluted states in Alabama 
to one of the least polluted states in Vermont. But I really feel like that was the best school for me to go to that gave me the independent study and the freedom to do a tutelage under Bobby Kennedy and, and to start my career, really my freshman year, to start creating these river keepers and give me the academic support and the credits, the college credits to graduate to do that. And so, you know, to answer your question, on the Black Warrior, it was coal. It was cradle-to-grave coal pollution, from coal mining to coal burning to the storage of coal ash waste. On the Cahaba River, the neighboring river, there was, it's a wealthier population, and there's a bunch of, it's a suburban overdevelopment. So you have sedimentation and siltation destroying that river. That's a major water supply for Birmingham, Alabama. But then the Tennessee River, uh, that I wanted to make one of the biggest river keepers that I had started, and I went big. It was a massive river. It's a very industrialized river. It pretty much has all of the water pollution issues on it. And it's become one of the biggest waterkeeper organizations in the country. But we are fighting a grim litany of almost every water pollution issue out there, from coal pollution to sewage to PFAS, which is Teflon and Scotchgard, made by 3M Pont, to microplastics. The Tennessee River is the poster child for freshwater microplastics right now because National Geographic did a cover article studying microplastic pollution in the Tennessee River in December 2018. Okay. So pretty much any issue, we have it on the Tennessee River. And But, uh, you know, it's really allowed me to fight harder and take on more pollution and more corporate bad guys. And that's a really important thing to do in the South. And we've been doing it also just as importantly as cleaning up the water. Our supporters are Republicans and Democrats. They are black and white. They are rich and yep. poor. Right. We are building a bridge in a divided country over these troubled waters. How appropriate, even regarding the, the Simon and Garfunkel song, <laughs> Bridge Over Troubled Waters. So, yeah, I would like people to know, because I think people don't understand fully, even though we try to explain what that does when you affect water quality. What does that do to the overall health of not just the fish or whatever is in that waterway, but to the people around it? the community. And how much does it, I would assume that because the standards are so lax, right, that you've got a situation here where the tap water is definitely not properly filtered is my guess. I could be wrong. You'd know better than me. But I'm curious as to the water quality, the quality of the water that the people are receiving, and then how that overall that affects the quality of health in the Tennessee area. Sure. I do the work that I do for Tennessee Riverkeeper, and Tennessee Riverkeeper exists to protect the drinking water for 6.3 million Southerners. First and foremost, we do this work because it protects the drinking water for the people, and our bodies are over 60% water. As I said, it doesn't matter how you vote, everyone drinks the same water. And even if you're buying bottled water, you cannot escape the public water supply you need it to cook with, to bathe with, to clean yep. your house with. Right. This is one of the greatest communal assets that we all own, and we have completely taken it for granted. We've forgotten about it. We've neglected our wastewater infrastructure. But these are lowest common denominator issues that one of the few things that we can agree on in this country. So Riverkeeper sues these polluters 
and we educate the public about their water supply because the public has forgotten about it. And we've been bickering so much over these bedroom issues. And we've taken our eyes and minds off the kitchen and the kitchen table, kitchen faucet, our food and our water. And as a result, we're getting poisoned in the process. And as I said, we're 60% water. So it doesn't matter how you vote or the color of your skin. I don't think it's a coincidence that my maternal ancestors' legacy in the civil rights movement and my godfather, Bobby Kennedy, and our family's legacy in the civil rights movement, this is a modern day civil rights issue that benefits all of the people and the pollution disproportionately negatively impacts the poor and the people of color. Without question, without question, because they don't have the proper filter. And so we're clear about that because I want this podcast not just to talk about things, but really get down to the specifics. And what we mean by that, folks, when we're talking about disproportionately affecting people of color or impoverished individuals is that the quality of the water that they receive is not properly filtrated in comparison to bigger, nicer McMansion or any houses, even people that just get Brita. Now, you might find that, yeah, that's simple and stupid, but it's not because there's still a lot of people that just drink straight from the tap water. So, And Seth, this is tied to the air pollution too. The nastiest, scariest, most toxic biggest polluting factories in our country are disproportionately in the poor neighborhoods. You don't see them in Beverly Hills, California, Greenwich, Connecticut, Mountain Brook, Alabama, Bellmead, Tennessee. You don't see them in those places. And so the the corporations keep the profits and the shareholders keep the profits, but the people that live in the shadow of these factories, these poor communities, they keep the pollution. And there's serious public health impacts from that. But unfortunately, we need to study them a lot more in this country. We know that it's not good for you to breathe this stuff and to drink this, most of this pollution. But there needs to be a lot more research done on this. And it should be funded by the polluters and governmental studies. But again, that's something that they've completely taken their eye off of, whether it's intentional or not. The agencies that are supposed to be protecting our public health and our clean air and water, the state environmental agencies and the EPA uh, have often been captured by the polluters that they are supposed to regulate. And they're controlled by those agencies. And that's why you see in the Deep South, oftentimes these state environmental agencies will shield and protect polluters rather than trying to stand up to these corporate interests and stand up for public health. Yes. For example, when you have even natural gas combined cycle turbines or when you have coal burning power plants, we are even seeing in New York where they have those kinds of power plants that those are the places, David, where there are the highest load pockets of COVID in the city. So I get it. (laughs) I get how the quality of the air impacts. I'm as part asthmatic, so I get it every day. The qual- how air quality affects everything in my life. So to not have proper, not just the water that we drink, which is 60% of our body, mind you, that's not a small thing, folks. Think about that, right? We cook in it, we bathe in it. We wash our face with it. We wash our hands. 
we clean our hands after cooking. We do all that with this water. And if this water is not properly filtrated, what are you going to do? Think about that. And then think about, which is something that I wanted to bring up as the next question for you, which is very tied to what I've been hearing a lot lately, you know, the past several years, actually. And now it's, again, up in the forefront, infrastructure, talking about expanding infrastructure improvements across the country, you know, and they talk about it at the federal level. Are they even talking about water in those possible infrastructure bills? I That's a great question. I'm really glad you asked it. From what I've seen, the initial my initial readings of some of the early proposed bills, there was not anything that I saw for sewage infrastructure and wastewater infrastructure. And I hope that it'll be added, but too often I'm skeptical because too often it's one of the first things that they forget about when they're talking about infrastructure. It's so easy for them to talk about fixing roads and fixing bridges and the things that you can see and people drive over versus fixing a sewage infrastructure pipe or wastewater treatment pipe that is complicated. You have to dig up the roads. It's, a, it's expensive to fix. It's underneath the ground, so it's easy for people to forget about. Honestly, it's not sexy to be talking about fixing sewage. So from what I've seen, and I've been looking at infrastructure for decades, from what I've seen is that yep. the wastewater infrastructure is the first that's forgotten, and not coincidentally. If you look across the board, if you were to ask me what is the most common water pollution problem in every state in the country, it's sewage pollution. It's leaks, it's overflows, it's inadequate wastewater treatment plants that are not properly treating the waste. It's because, you know, some towns like Nashville are too eager to grow and offer subsidies by building new lines for new developers and bring in more people into Nashville without fixing the old leaky infrastructure. So Nashville's riddled with sewage leaks because they keep adding more wastewater into the system and they're not they can't keep up with the volume and they're neglecting fixing the existing infrastructure. So let's take it back to 30,000 feet when we talk about infrastructure. One of the most important things that we can do in this country is talk about fixing the existing infrastructure. That provides jobs that you can't outsource. And our infrastructure has been crumbling and neglected because our politicians would too often rather build new infrastructure, often to provide a gift to some sort of developer who's building you know, new, some, some new fancy subdivision with mansions or, or building a new high-rise condo with unaffordable condos for sale, like in Nashville. And they're looking at aiding and abetting these developers and giving them corporate welfare. And they're not fixing our communal infrastructure, that our roads and our streets that are crumbling and our bridges that our taxpayer dollars have been funding for decades. For so, decades, right. You know, we talk about infrastructure, whether you're a Republican or Democrat. Infrastructure is one of the few things we can have a civil conversation on. But we must be talking about fixing the existing infrastructure. When any politician tells you they want to be building new infrastructure, follow the money because they're building it for someone. You know, they may say it's creating jobs, but ultimately they want to create jobs. Let's go fix some roads and fix some pipes. It just shows that even what we're talking about today is relatively antiquated in its debate, in its discourse. So when we're talking, what I mean by that is we're talking about infrastructure bills across 
the country here to do infrastructure, but it's nothing more than a roads and bridges project. It's not meant to deal with all of the infrastructure that needs to get repaired and what is more important than the quality of the water that comes into our homes or that we put into our body. And then when they wonder why we have epidemics and you know problems with health in this country, it's because of the chemicals we are allowing to be put into our body on a daily basis without us even knowing about it. I can imagine, and I'm just thinking about the improvements that they've done to water treatment plants in New York. And when you're saying that it's lax and antiquated, I would assume that some of these water treatment plants have not been improved or anything for quite some time. So my question to you is, it's not just the pipes. Has there even been any talk by these municipalities across Tennessee or wherever you've started where they say we need to improve the quality of the delivery of our water? Has there been any conversation about that over your life? Yeah, over the course of my life, I've certainly, while I can't say that there's more environmental passion and enthusiasm now than there was 20 years ago, I can say there's more awareness and focus and understanding on the importance of drinking water now and what's in the drinking water now than there was 20 years ago. That being said, there's still a lot of clueless people out there who don't know where, you know, who've lived in a town for 40 years. They've never asked the question, where does my water come from? And they certainly don't know what might be in it. There are way too many people in our country who have completely forgotten about their public water supply and take it for granted or don't drink water in the first place. They get hydrated from sugar drinks or whatever, you know, soda, whatever they're drinking. Soda, whatever. All sorts of of other health problems. But you see it in the South all the time. There are households that, you know, if they're out of soda in the fridge, they feel like they don't have anything to drink in the house. And the last thing they're going to do is fill up a cup with tap water and drink that. And that's a real paradigm in this country. But, you know, I digress. To get back to the water, what we've learned more about what the average wastewater treatment plant in the United States is not filtering than what they're taking out. The list of what they're not filtering has grown considerably over the last 20 years from what we know, largely due to almost every single pharmaceutical pill and medication that our country is prescribed or not prescribed to uh, take uh. All of that is being passed through human waste back into the system. And there are hardly any wastewater treatment plants in this country that are capable of filtering most pharmaceuticals out. So that stuff is just getting passed right back into our creeks and our rivers and larger water bodies. And we know it's showing up in the fish and in the wildlife. And, you know, that was my next question. We're, we're is probably, it showing up we're in probably the fish? drinking it from most water supplies, too, whether it's tap water or bottled water. There are probably pharmaceutical residues in most of the most of the glasses of water, whether it's tap or bottled in this country because we're not filtering it out and we are over prescribed to medication. Uh huh. David, that will be a, definitely another podcast with you because that's a whole other discussion, as they would say, about the overprescription. The, the Washington Post, reporters at the Washington Post uh, found, basically revealed this story 
about 10 years ago. And, you know, it was one of those massive news pieces that really changed the environmental conversation in this country tremendously. But that being said, so I talked about the pharmaceuticals. We're swimming in a toxic soup of a handful of families of chemicals, starting with the pharmaceuticals and them not being filtered out of our water supply, being overprescribed to that medication and it getting back into the water supply. Also the PFAS, PFAS pollution, which is Teflon and Scotchgard. Those are called forever chemicals because they will never, it is very, very difficult for them to break down in the environment or in our bodies. This stuff is everywhere. PFAS is very complicated, but it is everywhere. It was made by DuPont and 3M. I'm suing the 3M company for this pollution on the Tennessee River. But the Tennessee Riverkeeper has been suing 3M for PFAS pollution for over five years. It's one of the biggest environmental lawsuits in the country. But this stuff, it's a water repellent, stain resistant, fire retardant chemical that was used in anything fireproof, anything stain resistant, anything waterproof. It was coating jackets. It was on the inside of fast food wrappers. Some receipts were coated with it. It coated the inside of popcorn bags, the inside of pizza boxes. It coated our carpets to make them stain resistant that our toddlers were crawling on. It coated the plastic fibers that filled the cushions of our furniture to make them fireproof. It coated what was in our bedding to make that fireproof. All of it. And now we know that a significant amount of the dust in our house are these plastic fibers that are breaking down that are coated with PFAS. So that leads me to plastics. A lot of this stuff, the fibers in your carpet, the fibers in your sofa or or furniture or bedding that I talked about, those are synthetic fibers, mostly made of petroleum-based plastic materials that industry now decides is a good idea to coat with this PFAS chemical. And that stuff is a significant cause of indoor air pollution in your home. And we're inhaling it, breathing it, ingesting it, and in the dust that's in our homes. And we also know the dust is made from like particulate pollution from coal burning power plants and from dirty cars and trucks and things like that. So all of the dust is bad, but no one's thinking about um, these PFAS chemicals and plastics. We know that, you know, we shouldn't give a toddler... Uh, hot milk from a plastic bottle. And we also know that we should not be drinking from our old Nalgene bottles that have the BPA. Now they're BPA free. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. most Americans don't realize is BPA free is a marketing gimmick and that the plastic industry, once BPA was banned, all they did was move a couple of molecules around and create a similar but different compound. And they can call it like BPD or BPF, and it's just a different acronym, but it's pretty much the same chemical, likely with similar negative health impacts. And we know that there are microplastics all over the planet, and they're in our bodies as well. And so between the plastics and the PFAS and the pharmaceuticals, we're swimming in a toxic soup. And I believe that that is a significant source of all these public health problems in our country. Yeah, that's right. So they definitely are, because doesn't make sense that if you spray a scotch guard onto a couch or you pay extra for it to be scotch guarded or something like that, like they used to call it, right? right. And you get that shipped to your house and after a while you sit and if that car, that I'm not talking about higher end homes, I'm talking about people that are impoverished or lower income, low to moderate income, right? 
they keep that couch a lot longer. So when you sit down, you would see that plume of, it would look like, you know, particulates in the air or little dust particles. And it's probably coming straight from the couch. There, I did see a study recently that said some of that, when the light does shine in the right place, you do see that particulate pollution. Yes, in fact, some of those are these synthetic plastic fibers, you know, breaking down, but not breaking down forever, you know, completely breaking into smaller microplastics and, you know, possibly coated with PFAS. But there are also, there can be human and pet dander in that as well that you're seeing. So it's a combination of both, both are gross, but just to tie everything together with what I just said about pharmaceuticals, PFAS and microplastics, is that the majority of the drinking water filtration plants in this country are not designed to treat any of those things. And so, again, we know that we're filtering out like the mercury and the arsenic and the heavy metals from our drinking water, but most of them are so antiquated that they're not filtering out all these problems that we've only recently discovered. And one of the biggest environmental crimes and just public health crimes in this country is that these chemicals in general are proven and are innocent until proven guilty. And it's very difficult and costs a lot of money to prove them guilty. And that burden is largely on the scientists and the environmental groups and the general public, whereas it should be they are guilty until the corporation that is going to profit from them can prove that they are safe and that they are willing to put their whole corporate existence on the fact that they are safe. And if they're not safe, then they lose their corporate charter or they get sued out of oblivion for hurting people. But unfortunately, you know, the way that the corporate rules are structured in this country, they're getting away with these horrific environmental crimes and they are causing tremendous harm to public health. And they're like, you know, prove it because they know most citizens can't prove it. Right. You need heavy duty, real money behind you to need you need river Seth. (laughs) yeah yeah exactly what i was about to say was you meaning river keeper need to then get the quality scientists to prove this in court because they're like the defense and you're the plaintiff having try and prove these guys are criminals or these i I am literally the plaintiff as river keeper but i have to hire lawyers non-profit river keepers has to hire lawyers, has to hire scientists. But, you know, one of the most expensive things out there, we're looking for invisible chemicals that have no color or smell a lot of times that are really bad chemicals. And the cheap end of one sample of, let's just say, PFAS to test for maybe 40 different types of PFAS chemicals costs $250. And that's on the cheap end. You can spend more than that. But it's not just about one sample. In order to do it properly, We need to take one in that creek upstream from that pipe and downstream from that pipe and at that and at that pipe. So just to get one snapshot of is this chemical coming from this pipe, we have to prove that it's not upstream. We have to prove that it's at the pipe and we have to prove that there are trace amounts of it downstream, but not the amount that's at the pipe. And then we've got them nailed to the wall. But that sample, instead of $250 to get that one snapshot, costs us $750. And then in order to do it right, I got to hire a scientist that has the degrees that are holed up in court against these corporate lawyers. Oftentimes, they got 40 or 50 of them on their team. Of course. And I'm also the plaintiff, so it's 
it looks better if I have an external scientist doing the sampling. So it all of a sudden just starts to cost a fortune. And there's yep. no way a citizen could handle that. If I didn't have if I didn't have a nonprofit riverkeeper and a wonderful team of scientists, lawyers, and all sorts of other diverse people from different backgrounds, this David couldn't slay the Goliaths. And you literally are the good in this respect. Where I know this is basic, but where can people find your website and or the best way to donate? Is there recurring? Is there, I would assume, when they sign up for Tennessee Riverkeeper, that they're getting notifications or email alerts as to what's going on regarding this case so that they can be aware of it and participate, not just anybody in Tennessee, but anybody who donates or subscribes to your website. Tell us about where we can find out more about this and help you. Thank you, Seth. Well, we're very active on social media. We actually have the second biggest total audience and platform on social media after all of the 350 different water keepers around the world. The biggest is Hudson River Keeper, who was the first in your backyard. But we're on, we have a significant presence and very active on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and LinkedIn. We're constantly sharing news about these pollution issues on there. And it's not just local. We talk about, you know, what's going on in microplastic science and in PFAS and how the regulatory process is going. And we talk about big picture national issues, how these pollutants affect us nationally, and certainly how they affect our, our watershed as well. And then, yes, if anyone joins, then they are added to our mailing list. We send out about two emails a month. We send out a monthly newsletter at the beginning of the month that talks about these issues. And then we usually send out a special newsletter for whatever occasion is happening that month. Today, we sent out an Earth Day newsletter. And we do have a new membership promo drive going on. If anyone joins at a recurring level of $10 or more, we will send them a reusable stainless steel pint glass that says refuse single-use plastics, be the change, and has the Riverkeeper logo on there. It's a great piece of merch. Great trinket. Great trinket to send people. 10 bucks a month, folks. Come on. I don't know about you, but I'm getting the merch. <laughs> I'm going for the I'm going against the single-use plastics. I'm going for the merch for the uh, reusable items here. That I think, and it's also helping to protect the waterways down in the Tennessee area, which are I live, thank goodness, in you know up here where Riverkeeper is strong and the quality of water has improved dramatically. But it seems like the case down there is just as bad as it was in the 70s, in the 80s up here in New York. So you've got a lot of fighting to do and a lot of work to get done, and we need to be there for you every way we can. Thank you, Seth. And can we talk about the Hudson River Valley for like two minutes? I remember, I'm old school too. I remember the uh, lame GE stickers studying PCBs and river keepers suing General Electric. Yep. Hudson River, that also is a forever chemical. But what I learned in the 90s, learning about that massive environmental lawsuit, that historic environmental lawsuit of Riverkeeper versus General Electric for dumping PCBs in the Hudson River, they ruined the fish and they made so much money off of this chemical. This chemical would not break down in the water. The only way it was getting out of the Hudson was if GE, who made the money off of it, was going to pay their bill to clean up their mess. 
But there are so many similar properties between that complicated PCB issue of General Electric in the Hudson, and they also dumped in the Housatonic in Massachusetts too, uh, right. and 3M and DuPont and their PFAS pollution down in the south. But the Hudson Valley completely changed my life, especially Westchester. It was a second home for me growing up. And when I was starting my career, even when I was in college at Vermont, I considered coming home, going back to Westchester. We just spent considerable time in Bedford and Mount Kisco. We had our boat at Waverly Marina in Austin. Oh, yeah. I, oh, yeah. I, I learned how to water ski on Croton Point, which is the most beautiful part of the Hudson, in oh, my God. opinion. Yeah. It's, three, it's naturally three miles wide for a river. The Hudson's one of the longest undammed rivers in the world. There's a point at Austin that is Croton Point. It's three miles wide. It's one of the most beautiful parts of the Hudson. The Hudson River School painters used to paint it. And it's also one of the most biodiverse parts of the Hudson. And I fell in love with that part of the river. And that's where I was, you know, cutting my teeth with the Riverkeeper movement and learning how to water ski. And, and I also learned a lot about drive and efficiency and getting things done in a New York minute. And people down in the South sometimes think that I'm, I, I, that, that was a bad influence at the New York people, that I work too quickly and I'm <laughs> Impatient they don't know. They just yeah, don't know. They people don't know. like to take things a little slow down south. And I joke around. I say, well, the opposite of the New York minute is the Alabama minute. So a New York minute is actually 30 That's seconds. True. An Alabama minute right. is 120 seconds. So, and I Whoa. love Alabama. I can make those jokes. But, you know, it's hot down there. You know, you can't move too quickly. But the New no. Yorkers, no. Yeah. The New Yorkers get yeah. things done. They are an industrious, industrious, tough people. And they learned the hard way. They cut down the Adirondacks. They destroyed the Hudson. But they started earlier than most other states in fighting back against pollution, establishing common sense regulations that protected the water and the air and the land. And as a result, the Adirondacks are back. The Hudson is back. And New York went from being one of the most polluted states in the Union to one of the cleanest states in the Union. And the, the Riverkeeper movement was pivotal in that process starting in 1966. Amen. And I remember it, the whole experience and watching the news of the cleanup fight and the whole thing. That is what completely engaged me into understanding how even an Indian point and how uh, essential it is to keep the quality of the water on the Hudson as clean as possible because they already have done the damage. It's like the damage has been done. Clean it up, which is what we all used, you know, clean it up. Let's try and get something back. And for you to even say, which is for a person my age too, is like just unfathomable to hear. But you just said it, the Adirondacks are back. Oh my God. I remember years that you would never say anything like that because it was like one of the dirtiest areas, even though it looked the be most beautiful quality of the air was hard. So it is these fights and what Riverkeeper does across the globe to make a difference to keep the waterways as pristine as possible because if you leave it up to the corporations they'll just dump on us and quietly hide it and have enough lawyers to cover it because it's just in a given salary to cover that lawyer versus all those people that are affected by drinking the the water using it showering in it washing their hands face we're a porous body system 
as you said before, 60% of our body is water. So if the quality of our water is not the best it can be, we can only expect the worst to come. We have high obesity rates, we have malnutrition, and we have a lot of things, and it could be all tied probably back to the water in many ways, and the quality of the air, of course, too, and how that affects our lungs, how it affects the quality of the health of those people that are impoverished, low to moderate income. So there's a lot that needs to be done about this because we're setting the standard in many cases, not just here, but for the globe. When you started expanding out, what were some of the first countries globally to join Riverkeeper as we're talking about that as well? Because I know, you know, you did state by state by state, but what other countries stepped up and said, we need to be a part of this movement? That's a great question. And what we've seen in country by country, similar to what we saw state by state, what was the catalyst to creating strong growth in the movement was one program getting started, having a little bit of strategy and guidance and probably a dynamic leader that got things going and made it work and built an organization called Riverkeeper. And then that would inspire the creation of citizens and leaders to create these organizations on the neighboring watersheds. And it would the idea and movement would flow from that one successful program. That story happened uh, in New York, in California, and in Georgia on the Chattahoochee River, which was started by Ted Turner and his daughter, Laura Turner Seidel, in Atlanta. And Georgia is one of our strongest states, and it's because the Chattahoochee Riverkeeper was started so early and is just one of the greatest environmental groups in the entire country. It rivals Hudson Riverkeeper, even though they were started in 1995 and Hudson Riverkeeper was started in 1966 and New York is much bigger than Atlanta. So that is the pattern. And then to take that globally, we've had tremendous success and growth in Canada, Australia, and India and India was led largely by Vandana Shiva, who's one of the greatest environmentalists in the world and who a lot of your audience will probably know. Yep. yep. That's great. I mean, it does come down to, and as we're learning today, how a small group of people can make an effectuate change. Talking about handfuls of people, but they were leaders, they were impact drivers, and they were people that stood up for what was right. And I'm so glad that you're in India, because boy, does it. (laughs) Sure. And Canada, you know, they're our neighbor. It kind of made sense in Canada, but for the 62nd history of how it expanded so well in Canada, uh, one of the leading environmentalists in Canada, an attorney named Mark Mattson, became friends with Bobby Kennedy, and Bobby went and made a bunch of speeches there, and Mark was the leader who started Lake Ontario Waterkeeper in Toronto, which is one of the best environmental groups in Canada. And he went pretty much coast to coast in Canada and wanted to help anyone with Bobby and Toe often making speeches and wanted to help any of the groups in Canada that wanted to get started. There are a lot fewer watersheds in Canada. The watersheds boundaries are massive. So there's fewer of them in Canada than in the U.S. So we're pretty much well covered in Canada. We have a water keeper on almost every major water body there. But additionally, we don't, the water keepers, we sue polluters. We sue corporations. So we are prevented 
it's very difficult for the water keepers to raise money because we are suing the wealthiest and most powerful people in the communities. And they hate us. Not only will they not make a donation from the 3M, not only will the 3M company never donate to Tennessee Riverkeeper because we're suing them, but oftentimes these big corporate interests, I'm not talking about 3M anymore, but these big corporate interests will have executives sit on the board of directors of local foundations. And then they blackball the river keepers from foundations. Oh. That happened before where there's a polluting executive on a board of a foundation and they have veto power to deny a nonprofit and our financials are bulletproof and everyone loves the cause on the board and we can get 90% of the vote. But that one executive from the polluting interest with polluting entity with self-serving interest will veto. And so we have to think creatively when we fundraise. And the majority of my career has been funded by the music industry. I'm very blessed and privileged that way. It's a fun way to fundraise. We put the fun back in fundraising. But we, awesome. we do concerts. And it's, it's not just the jam bands, although Fish was the first band that I ever worked with and supported my career. And I met John Fishman, the namesake, when I was in college at Burlington, oh, wow. University of Vermont. He was one of my best friends in college. He kind of taught me and inspired me to replicate this. And eventually it was Drive-By Truckers and Jack Johnson and Michael Franti. And then from there, it was hundreds of musicians that supported my Riverkeepers and the cause. Obviously, Tennessee Riverkeeper in Nashville. We have a huge presence there. But eventually, a lot of my musician friends will say, you're never going to get the country musicians to support Riverkeeper especially with your relationship to Bobby Kennedy, because they're still scared of getting Dixie chicked. And that was a verb in Nashville at the time that what the horrific thing that happened to the Dixie chick were the Dixie chicks, where they spoke out against the Iraq war and were basically their career was ruined by three radio industry executives who controlled most of the radio stations in the country supported Bush realized they did. Those three executives didn't like what the Dixie chicks were saying. And they made a pact to not play their music anymore, and it killed their career. There's a documentary about this, and it was terrible. But that instilled a fear in Nashville for pretty much any country musician in Nashville to not take a political stance for almost 20 years. Unfortunately, that fear is gone now, but we have had tremendous success, as much success with the country musicians who are largely Republicans as we have with the jam bands and the rock and roll bands who are largely Democrats. But the reason I bring that up is Gord, my dear late friend Gord Downey from the Tragically Hip was one of the greatest supporters we had in the music industry, the Waterkeepers. And he loved Lake Ontario Waterkeeper. And he played a pivotal role in expanding the movement in Canada. And we love the Tragically Hip. And they're a wonderful part of Canadian culture. It's a great strategy. And it also helps carry the message in a very positive way cultural way through musicians as well to support what you're doing and yes it was a shame what happened to the dixie chicks because they were you know a great band and just because they spoke up which is your first amendment right they got slammed and canceled if you think about it so it's very scary so i'm very grateful that the music community has has after unfortunately 20 years has started coming back and being wanting to be part of a way to clean up the environment in a positive way. And yet, you know, I've, I've said for a long time to people up here in Westchester, you know, that I don't look at green living or, or the environment 
as a blue or a red or a red or a blue issue. It's it's a green across the board issue for everybody. And as my mom used to say, without air, good air, you don't have politics. Then you can't breathe, right? So it's important that we all work together and uh, support each other as much as humanly possible in this fight, because there's no question that it, it is a fight. So we will be linking up stories about your fight to the Green Living Guy website. We will add this podcast into, and it will be on Spotify, iTunes, iHeart, Apple, Stitcher to get it out there as well. And I will be working hard to get as many people to listen to this message as possible and to get involved in the Tennessee Riverkeeper, as well as any Riverkeeper that's in your area as well. I mean, if there's a Riverkeeper in your area, that's a simple way to help protect your environment to donate to that because they're fighting the fight that needs to be fought that nobody's willing to fight and you have a family that definitely supports you that definitely cares for the environment and there's no question that robert kennedy jr has been a stalwart for the environment without question he's known in westchester for that so that's not even something we're going to debate like they do in the south about or in other places like climate change you know, we're just not going to do that because it's a given, it's a staple, it's a K, it's a Kelvin, it's a constant. But what you're doing is more than appreciated. And to be able to do this on Earth Day and to talk about this on Earth Day is even more special. And you will have a recurring donor on your list very shortly, I guarantee it. And I will do everything I can to help get the word out. And then inevitably, we should have you back maybe bring on uh, one of your fellow supporters and really, you know, rock it out or turn it up or do whatever we got to do to get the word out about what you're doing. Because I think that your interconnection of music to the environment has also been very special for me for a very long time. I remembered in college when I would see just these massive concerts and the amount of people that would go because it's such a universal language for people. And I would say, whatever I'm going to do, I have to include music. <laughs> There's just no question that bringing the two together makes for a better song. So, David, all I can say is everybody, one small step at a time, as Green Living Guy says, when it comes to the, you know, I'd rather have a billion imperfect environmentalists than, than not, right? So today's right. one small step at a time is to join your river keeper if you're in the Tennessee area. Join the Tennessee Riverkeeper. Help out David. He's fighting a fight that we never even knew about really until today, folks. We never talked about, I never really talked about this on my website. So this is new, real information that needs to be brought to the forefront. I remember the first time I was on a podcast saying way back when we need to be fighting against Oh, gosh, what's that spray that Monsanto gives everybody in the... Found out. Thank you. I said one way that you could get rid of or help solve the environment when you're gardening is make sure you don't use Roundup. So, and I remember fighting that fight. And I know how even home, de you know, many companies are still selling it. And they're waiting for their lawsuits to go through before they even make a change. So, folks, this fight is far from over. We have yet to begin, and what David is doing is leading the charge. He's like 
the guy in the front with the flag and the army is behind him and we need to, you know, stand behind him and what he's doing to help protect the environment. He's got a family of river keepers behind him, but and a great history with Robert Kennedy Jr. as his godfather. But folks, we need to help him. He can't do this alone. And he has musicians helping him, but we all need to kind of kick in 10 bucks a month. Doesn't hurt. Doesn't kill us. It's not a big deal. It actually helps us. Think about that. You know, it'll make the quality of your water better in the long run. It did in the Hudson Valley area. Imagine what it can do in Nashville or in Georgia or in other parts of Canada. India. India. My gosh, India. How they need the quality of the water improved. Quality of their air improved. It's one of the most polluted areas in the world. So to have a river keeper there is essential. Folks, you know, this is the one small step we can do this Earth Day and this Earth Month. You know, people like us, for David and I, Earth Day is every day. But today on this Earth Day, we're going to make a commitment to the Tennessee Riverkeeper, folks. I'm going to put it on my website. We're going to make it strong. We're going to make it loud. And we're going to help them out. So, David, if you have any last words, I'm all for it. And we'll wrap up with you right now. Thank you so much, Seth. That's extremely generous on all fronts. This is a wonderful way to support the cause, to make that plea and to give me this platform to speak about these issues and to amplify my voice and promote this episode. It's all really one of the best ways that people can help. And in that regard, you know, certainly we welcome everyone in your audience to join, whether they're in the South or not. We also encourage them to follow us on social media if they do join. That's a good way to educate themselves, to stay informed, but also a rising tide lifts all boats. And, you know, the more, the bigger our platform is online, the louder our voices and in, in calling these polluters out and speaking truth to power. And then finally, I encourage all of your audience. We know that the people in the Hudson Valley can support Hudson Riverkeeper, but I encourage everyone in your audience outside the Hudson Valley to go to waterkeeper.org and go to find their local waterkeeper and get involved there. And the first thing you can do, find your local waterkeeper. Second thing you can do is follow them on social media and you'll start learning about what's going on in your community. And I'll close with two things. One is if we start paying attention to what's going on underwater in our communities, if we open our eyes underwater or look at what is being reflected on our public waterways from the land and just have this aquatic perspective. Looking under that water, you can often see the problems in the community and the political corruption that enhances and exacerbates those problems. I say, if you, you know, look underwater and you'll see what's going on wrong and corrupt above land. You follow the money. You find the pollution, you follow the money as to who's causing that pollution. They're often the biggest lobbyists and, you know, pulling the strings in that, that community and that state. So this is a good way for us to clean up politics and to unite the country. As I said, we all drink the same water, so we can certainly, this issue unites us more than it divides us. And we ought to be building these bridges over troubled waters and the last thing I'll say is happy Earth Day, everyone. Thank you so much for having us, Seth. You betcha. Happy Earth Day. And go to your waterkeeper.org. Go find out how you can get involved because they are a leader. They have been a leader since I have been around. 
since I have lived, they have been around and I have watched them grow and become the organization that they are. So the only thing that we can do is protect our water because it's the first thing we try to drink or wash our bodies with, face, our hands and everything. Happy Earth Day. Green Living Guy out. David Whiteside. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a privilege and an honor. And we're going to enjoy the rest of this Earth Day as humanly possible. Believe that you can make a change. Because, as they say, never doubt what a small group of like-minded individuals can do. Because they can change the world. And people like David are part of that mantra of making a change and changing the world. So, thank you. We will keep in touch. And we'll keep rocking. Stay cool. Talk to you soon. You've been listening to The Green Living Guy Show with your host, Seth Lightman. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.